So this, so so here, so here's the thing that you have to respect when you go from like a standing representation to a supine representation on the table because they're not the same. Okay, mm -hmm. so there's a couple of potential things that could happen. Good morning, happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Mm. It's really good. I can't wait to finish that. Okay. Uh, busy Monday. We're going to dig right into this. Uh, quick reminder, for those of you that are IFS University members, we have a Q&A today at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So please uh, join me for that if you're an IFSU member. If you're not an IFSU member, well, why not? Um, probably time to get signed up for that. Okay, uh, we'll dig right into today's Q&A with Kyle. And I've talked to Kyle before. Okay, that's a really good question. I think it's a common question for a lot of people when we're talking about the superimposition of internal rotation on top of external rotation. It's a difficult concept to grasp because the previous model has been this imaginary zero point that exists somewhere based on dead guy anatomy where you have ER on one side and IR on the other. And the reality is, is that they are superimposed. And if we can understand this concept, then we can understand the sequencing of events that is required for us to make these, these changes, especially when we're trying to restore uh, relative movement. So thank you, Kyle, for, for asking this question. Um, we also talk a little bit about the sequencing of events about how to resolve some of these superficial compensatory strategies that's near the end of this discussion. So, so please hang in there for that. It'll be up on YouTube later today. Don't forget to subscribe to the, to the YouTube channel as well so you can be um, the, the first to get all of the new videos as they are posted up there. Um, if you have any questions, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consult, then please put that in the subject line so I do not delete your email by accident. So again, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you all tomorrow. And we are rolling, and the clock is running. Go ahead, Kyle. All right, so I have kind of two questions that kind of like Venn diagram. So they, they're kind of separate questions that overlap. Gotcha. Um, so if you don't mind, I'll throw both at you and you can kind of take them as you will. We're good. Um, so my first question is, as I wrote to you, um, last time we spoke, you mentioned how external rotation is kind of this field that internal rotation has to exist within. Correct. And so that kind of had me thinking about like the concept of internal rotation. And I know when we need to create force um, to move through the world, we need to create some sort of internal rotation strategy. Um, so it kind of got me thinking of this concept of like internal rotation being kind of like a point on a plot, essentially like a moment in time. Yep. Um, and just kind of, is that correct? Like is internal rotation really just a moment in time? And if so, what are the applications like how do we use that as a useful model mm -hmm. and then the the other half of the question that kind of overlays into that is when you have someone who has multiple layers of compensatory strategies so like i follow a lot of zach couple stuff and he talks about the kind of like sequencing of treatment um based on kind of the sequencing of how we would imagine these compensatory layers are added on. So just as an example, like if you have the same measurements for someone with a narrow infrasternal angle versus a wide infrasternal angle, 
you're going to go about sequencing that treatment differently because of that infrasternal angle presentation. Um, so traditionally, I would imagine that you would take someone with a wide infrasternal angle if they loss internal rotation-based measures, you would want to get those measures back. So like if they're compressed A to P, you're going to work on that anterior expansion before that posterior expansion, which in my mind would recapture a lot of those internal rotation measures. Mm -hmm. But when I think about this in concept of internal rotation needs to exist within external rotation, I'm wondering, would it make more sense to treat these people like we need to get these external rotation measures back first, regardless. Okay. So what do you want to start with? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess starting with that first part of like that concept, because it's kind of still a little abstract to me. So just kind of like, okay. Trying to take right. it and bring it into a useful. Let's make it. Let, so, so let's make the ER and the IR are, are a, a simple representation. Okay. All right, um, IR is, is, is movement downward into the ground. Okay, the reason that you move downward is to hold yourself up. So I have to push against the ground to stay up, right? To stay upright. So if I stand on your shoulders, you have to push harder into the ground to, to hold yourself up because I'm trying to shove you down, okay? That's IR. ER is an expansive strategy that moves you away from the ground, right? So, so it holds you up, but, but it, it actually reduces your density, if, it were, if, if that makes sense, right? So if I blow you up like a balloon, you're expanding and I'm, and I'm moving everything away from each other. And so that reduces the density. So that actually reduces how gravity will impact you, right? So, so, so I have a, a, a compressive force and I have an expansive capability, right? Does that yeah. make sense? Okay. So... I can't have this out. There's nothing outside of you that can that can push you in. I have to, I have to create that within the framework, wherever that barrier is, whether it be your skin or your electromagnetic field, whatever we want to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. So, so there is a barrier, and and I have to behave within that. So I can't produce force outside of me, right? The forces that I produce are in inside. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's my internal rotation capability. So that's my pressure downward. And so I have to do that within this, whatever, like I said, whatever the barrier is, wh wh however we want to define it. So for right now, let's just say it's within the, the, the framework of your body. Right. Yeah. It's like I have to produce the force within that because I can't do it outside. It's like there's nothing outside of me that I can that I can do it with. Right. Yeah. So 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 that's how internal rotation always has to stay within this external rotation. But if I squeeze you down and I make your space smaller. Mm -hmm. And again, if I can't produce anything outside of me, then I have narrowed the field within which you can produce this internal rotation. And so, so it doesn't mean that you don't have a strategy to produce force into the ground. It just means that, that the, the, the more compressed and more compressed and more compressed you become, the less relative motions I have available to do this. And so this is why we see strategies like an anterior orientation of the pelvis that allows me to continue to put force into the ground, but that's not going to be relative motion within the pelvis. Yeah. So it's not nutation and internal rotation of the ilium that's producing that, that position. I have locked everything in because of the compressive strategies. I, I progressively lose relative motion between the, any segments that I can produce and everything starts to behave as one. 
Gotcha. But I, that, that doesn't mean that I can't push down. It just means that the way that I push down, I'm putting stuff together, right? Let's just say that I have, I start with 25 different individual segments and through compression, I now only have 12 and then I compress myself more and now I only have eight. So I only have eight places that I, that I could capture any relative motion to create this orientation that allows me to push down into the ground. So that's how internal rotation always has to stay inside of this external rotation. Does, yes. does it, okay. All right. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. Okay. So, so you understand that because again, interrotation is down, extra rotation is up. Okay. Mm -hmm. That kind of makes it really simple. Yeah. Right? All you have to do is create a strategy that does one or the other. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Now restate your second, the second half of your question. So the second mm -hmm. half is if we are treating someone mm -hmm. who has multiple layers of compensation, because if we yep. assume normal compensatory strategies, Yep. You're going to say a wide ISA is losing ER measures and yep. should have IR measures. Yep. Um, now, based on what you just said, yep. those IR measures still need to exist within those ER measures. That is correct, sir. Um, now, if that wide ISA, for example, is also losing those internal rotation measures, yep. is the, the play, you know, okay, let's get those IR measures back or is it? We need to restore ER measures back and then get IR measures back. Okay. So when, when we talk about, about creating a space, I didn't indicate where that space had to arise, right? So anything, any strategy that I can create that moves me into an expanded ER field. So, so if I can create an expansive strategy that, that moves me away from the ground, I can utilize that to create more internal rotation. Now, it's not necessarily always the best strategy or the most efficient strategy because I can, I can, if I use table measures as my guide, right? So traditional joint measures, mm -hmm. I may not get external rotations back based on my traditional joint measures, but I can still measure a higher degree of internal rotation. So, so I can redistribute internal rotation because again, so, so let me give you an example of what an external rotation measure is that people don't really recognize too much. Lumbar flexion is an external rotation measure. So what if I gave you a strategy that increased your external, the, the, the lumbar flexion, and now I can measure more internal rotation against that. Now, not necessarily the best choice under most circumstances if my goal is to restore relative motions, but it does happen. So, so what, what, what some folks end up doing is they will select an activity with the intention, with the intention of increasing the ER field at the hip joint. Like say, say they're trying to capture ER at the hip joint and then they'll go back and they'll measure and they don't gain uh, external rotation at, at the hip joint based on traditional measures. Yeah. But they'll gain internal rotation. It's like, so how did you do that? Well, I've redistributed the internal rotation potentially across the what, whatever ER field that I did have, or I magnified an area of ER compensatory activity relative to the normal joint motions. And now I'm using that as my ER field that I'm measuring the IR against. Do you see the difference? I think so. Okay, so let me give let me let me give you an example. So let's use the pelvis and the lumbar spine again because it's a little bit easier to see. So if I wanted to expand the ER field of relative motion within the pelvis, I would need a counternutated sacrum and an ER ilium as a representation of that. That would provide me external rotation with the potential to superimpose internal rotation on top of that. Correct? 
Yep. Okay. But what if I didn't change the relative position within the pelvis, but I gained lumbar flexion? That's more ER, right? Okay. <clears throat> so if I, if, I, if I was moving the hip through internal and external rotation and the lumbar spine was flexed, okay, that's yep. ER, right? Yep. And as I move them into IR, what if the lumbar spine was moving into traditional extension as I'm moving the hip into IR and it looks like the hip moves into IR now? Okay. I think I'm, yeah, no, I think you, I'm getting you see, you, So this is, so this is, this is how the compensatory strategies provide us with, with, with elements of, of movement. And let me, let me also make clear that, that the spine is always moving when you're moving the hip joint. Mm -hmm. It's just that to what degree is it an influence? And so this is what makes some of our measures kind of dirty and, and why we have to use our iterations and why we have to use um, the, the comparison between shoulder and hip measures to clarify what we're actually measuring, right? It's like those weird things when you get somebody with like 80 degrees of hip external rotation, you go, how do you get 80 degrees of hip external rotation? Well, you don't. That's, that's the pelvis that's rolling on the table and the lumbar spine is turning with your measure. That's how those things are created. Okay. Right? So I could also create a, a position of orientation into external rotation mm -hmm. that will allow me to capture some more internal rotation. And so a lot of times that happens too. And again, all we're doing is redistributing this internal rotation somewhere within the system to allow us to access that. Okay. Can okay. I provide you with um, kind of a more real example? And Absolutely. Kind of Absolutely. Okay. Talk fast. So, so in that, like for an example of like what you're talking about, would an example be, cause I'm pretty sure I've seen this before where someone is like a wide infrastructural angle and they lose IR yep. and yet they have external rotation and you look at a lot of their other measures and you're like, this doesn't really make sense. And then that would be kind of like a tipping yes. of the thorax yes. that thousand percent thousand percent so this so so here so here's the thing that you have to respect when you go from like a standing representation to a supine representation on the table because they're not the same okay mm -hmm. so there's a couple of potential things that could happen so if i have somebody that is oriented into external rotation that's how they create it so so segments are jammed together so i don't have relative motion in the thorax i don't have relative motion in the pelvis but i can orient the sockets outward and that creates a, a field of external rotation okay it's not relative motion but it's still external rotation then i use another orientation so my anterior orientation of the pelvis anterior orientation of the thorax and that's how i capture my force down that's why er is up ir is down real simple okay but when i lay down on the table there's two potential things that can happen number one i have so much anterior orientation that i'm in the same orientation as i was in standing so that's going to steal my er on the table Okay. However, if I land the table and then the orientations tip backwards, it magnifies ERs. So now I get like a straight leg raise that I probably shouldn't have. Now I get flexion, shoulder flexion that I shouldn't have. Now I get traditional external rotation measures that I shouldn't have. So you have somebody that has like 120 degrees of shoulder external rotation and 10 degrees of, of shoulder IR on the table. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so, so again, that's what happens. When we think about the sequencing, okay, the, the goal is to restore, in most cases, in, in our realm where we're working with people that are in pain, we're trying to restore a relative motion so we can distribute force instead of making it focal like we would for performance, 
right? When we're trying to restore the, the relative motions, the way that you, you tend to strip away these, these things is in the same sequence in which, uh, or, or in the sequence that they're applied. So if you think about like a wide ISA, so the last compensatory strategy typically in the thorax for the wide ISA is that posterior lower compression. Well, if I don't get rid of that posterior lower compression, that's my first ER, right? That's my first representation of ER if I'm if I'm trying to reach upward or something like that. I have to restore that first. That's my ER field. Then I can go after something that would be more anterior, which is going to restore my IRs. So it's not as clean as it as it seems to be. Yeah. Right. Um, but the thing, the the way that I would look at this for to make it really really simple for you, orientations first. Because without, without restoring the capacity to, to reorient the pelvis forward and backward, I don't have a shot at restoring relative motions. You can't yeah. do it. Because when I'm oriented like that, everything's compressed into a singular piece. I don't have the potential to, to restore the eccentric orientation that is required. So orientations first, uh, ER somewhere, right? ER field somewhere, sorry, ER somewhere, usually in the sequence in which it was laid down and then IR superimposed on top of that. So again, if we're looking at a wide ISA with anterior orientation, restore the capacity to, to uh, move the, the pelvis forward and backward through space. So I'm, so basically I'm anteriorly oriented. I'm going to teach them how to posteriorly orient. I'm going to expand the ER field, usually from the bottom up. That's how the lungs fill. I'm going to restore it from the bottom up. So now I'm thinking like posterior lower thorax. I got to get expansion there. And then I can go after something like pump handle and get, get the IR. Does that make sense? Yes. All right, brother. I got to go. Great question. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. And I hope there's not a, a capacity limit on the amount of these we could do. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Don't worry, man. Don't worry. Have a great day. Thank you. So all those people that, that like poo-poo machine training really need to rethink their thought process in regards to if we're, if, if hypertrophy is the goal, right? Is mm -hmm. it like, again, if you don't really give the rats patootie about, about movement capabilities, by all means, you better be doing some machine training if, if hypertrophy is the goal. There's advantages there. Right. Right. I just don't care how you get the stuff in there. They just respond to a stimulus. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man, I am, I'm feeling good. I'm still pretty fired up. Um, after yesterday's IFAS university call, we had a great call. What about 90 minutes? So it's a little bit longer than we usually go. The questions were, were, were so good. These guys are getting so good. They're using the model to an extensive degree and they're doing it actually quite well. So it's been really, really fun to see that evolution. If you're not part of IFS University, you are missing out. Okay, so we're gonna dig in today's Q&A. Um, this is with Ben and it's all about powerlifting. So, so Ben works with a lot of powerlifters, had some great questions. We basically dissected the whole lever pulley concept and why it doesn't really apply to human beings. Um, and then how does this perspective affect how we look at things in powerlifting? So that was really, really fun in industry, but we covered hypertrophy. We talked about arching um, scapular position in a bench press. Um, why Arnold's chest is still the best chest that's ever, ever been in bodybuilding. So, so we covered a lot of ground here with powerlifting. Ben was the last caller of the day, so we actually went went long. He was pretty excited about that. I, I was having a great time. So this is actually a really, really fun call. Please watch it all the way through. I think it's about 26 minutes. 
Um, but lots of good stuff in there. Um, thanks to Ben for your participation. If you would like to get on a 15-minute consultation call, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and put a 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I do not delete it. Or if you just have a regular old question, go to the same email address, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and, and leave me a question, and we'll try to address that for you. All right? You guys have a great Tuesday. I will see you tomorrow. Is, we are rolling. Clock has started. Fire away. Go, 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 go. Okay. So based on my current understanding or from what I currently understand, there are no levers in the body because bones don't touch under normal circumstances. Good, good qualifier. Normal circumstances. You are correct. Yes. And so when bones do touch, bad things tend to happen. So given that information, I'm looking to specifically visualize because sometimes I have a hard time visualizing things, even though conceptually, maybe they come a bit more easily. So for something like the lat or the pec, a lot of people who um, are in this hypertrophy world where, um, you know, we're looking to take origin to insertion, um, uh, you know, line of pull, we're trying to manipulate all those things, access to rotation. Um, How how does the model sort of fit into hypertrophy? And I know you've discussed hypertrophy on sort of uh, the level of your model before, but for something like... um, like a, a single arm lap pull down or just anything with the pecs. Sure. Those two muscles really, from a visual perspective, look like they're using the rib cage as leverage. And I've heard yeah. a lot of people say that the rib cage is, serves as a fulcrum to that, to that sort of rotation. So I was wondering from the perspective of your model, um, how you conceptualize that with fluid movement, because with the rib cage, it's a little bit trickier for me to, to visualize it rather than talking about something like a knee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I, so it, I, I, I totally get where you come from. So, so, so first and foremost, let's, let's talk about the, the lever issues first. Okay. Mm-hmm. The thing that, the thing that I think is confusing in regards to the representation is that we, we have still have a lot of cadaver based anatomy concepts that we use and it's not that they're not useful. So, so there are times where that model helps us visualize things and discuss things. So, so I can still talk that model if we need to, to make, to make a point because there are, there are things that we pull against, right. To create a shape change. The thing that you got to recognize. So when you look at like the way that a ladder, a pack, a pack attaches to the, to the humerus and produces the, the, the shape change in the turns that we would talk about, you got to understand that that, that thing is surrounded, surrounded by water. And that's, that's something that the, a book can't show you that and a dry cadaver dissection can't show you that because dry dead guys do have levers. Okay. And so that's why, that's why that model exists is because, um, and, and like I said, it's useful for an understanding of how some of this stuff is produced, but now put it, put a water balloon and then stick all that stuff inside the water balloon. And that's literally, we're creating these fluid shifts. When we're creating areas of density, what we do is we slow the motion down in that area, right? So you have one area of the body that moves faster than the other. And so that's what's producing this this relative motion between a segment that is moving and one that appears to not be moving. It's just moving slower. And then we have cancellation out of directions, right? 
So, so if I have, if I have two, two sides that can turn in opposition to one another, so they can both internally and externally rotate against one another, right? So if I want to turn left, they both turn in the same direction. If I want to turn right, they both turn in the same direction. If I want to internally rotate, they turn towards each other, they cancel each other out and my force goes down. If I want to externally rotate, they both turn away from each other and they go up. So now I, I can see the light bulb going off in your head, right? <laughs> Now yeah. you start to see where this where this stuff happens. And so what you're doing is, remember, ER and IR are always occurring at the same time, right? So if I'm, if I'm seeing motion occurring, I have established a field in which I can move. So that's my external rotation field. And then I superimpose the IRs on top of that, okay? But, but understand that, okay, so if you are, um, you've done dynamic effort bench presses before, right? Sure. Okay. So that's really fast, yeah. okay? And then you've done a max effort bench press before, right? Okay, yeah. one moves faster. Which, which one? one which one's faster? Is this a trick question? No, and I'm, I'm, I'm just stating the obvious for, for everybody that's gonna learn something yeah, yeah, but, from your question, because yeah. this is really good. Go ahead. Yeah, the dynamic effort okay. should be fast. Right. Percentage of one RM at, at, for, for your dynamic effort bench press falls within what range? Uh, like anywhere from 40 to 60 with accommodating resistance. Awesome. Okay. So it's not max effort. So we go max effort bench presses and we're talking like 85, 90, 95, 95%, yeah. right? And it's much, much slower, which means that the amount of, of ER that I'm actually demonstrating in my max effort bench press is actually a lot less than my dynamic effort because one, I can't demonstrate velocity at IR, right? Because IR uh -huh. slows time down. Right. It limits it literally limits the field in which I can move. And it's and so whenever I'm doing IR, I am actually slower than I am with ER because ER expands and that's velocity. IR compresses and that's force production with a sacrifice of, of, of the velocity. So now I've got I've got these two demonstrations of ER and IR, which means that because I'm compressed, there is just less movement. If there's less movement, I have a smaller field in which I can move. And because of the, the forces that are applied, I, it will always be slower because it's more IR. IR slows things down. ER speeds things up. Okay. So if I'm if I have something that appears to be a fulcrum, okay. Yep. It's just an area that's moving slower than the other part. Okay. Case in point. Bicycle wheel. Yeah. Got it? Okay. Bicycle wheel, the center is the hub. And then the wheels around the outside and the spokes connect the, yep. the, the hub to the wheel. Okay. So as the bicycle wheel is spinning, as the bicycle wheel is spinning, the hub is turning slower than the outside because if I put a point on the wheel and a point on the hub, they both have to come around at the same point at the same time. So if I'm following one spoke, that spoke goes around based on whatever velocity the wheel is spinning, but, but the wheel has to spin faster because it's got to cover more distance in the same amount of time. Mm -hmm. See it? Yep. Okay, see it. the hub's still moving, the hub is still moving. It's just moving slower. You see it? Yep. So if I'm doing a heavy press and somebody says, well, you've got a fulcrum here. Uh -uh. It's, it's just moving slower relative to the extremity that I can visualize. You see it? Yeah. So even in something like a max effort bench. There... I mean, go ahead. You're going to say it. Go ahead. I want you to say it. 
Yeah. So that's like, you, you need the ER field somewhere. Yes. So you get it with the grip width. Sure. You could. It's part um, of it. It's part of it because it creates an orientation for me. Right. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. even if my, if my humerus is flexing, traditionally flexing and, and adducting, and my rib cage doesn't appear to be moving. The rib cage is still moving, but it's yeah. moving at an even slower rate than my Absolutely. arm is. Absolutely. Okay. A thousand percent. You totally get it. You totally get it. Okay. Absolutely. So yeah. visually we're visually, it's very hard to, to see that, but that's what we know is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. See, see, and, and, and that, and, if you can understand that, then everything starts to fall into like you, you and you've, you've heard me say the word coherent probably a gajillion times on, on videos and in discussions and stuff like that. It's like, we have to have, we have to have this coherence. It's like the, the minute we start to have levers, bad things, really the amount of heat that is produced that's associated with that would be so destructive to tissues. And, and I get to speak from experience here because, um, because I have bionic hips, right? Mm -hmm. And so I paid, the, I paid the price for having a lever, right? Yeah. Okay. And when the lever hits, it goes fast, like really fast. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's fun. Let me tell you. Yeah, I'm sure. It's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a, but see that this is a really good question because again it's like I, as soon as I read as soon as I read your email I I knew exactly where we were going to go with this because mm -hmm. because it, it's it's difficult to visualize but but again this the the representation of the lever system is okay because it it guides us and it creates an analogy for comparison so now you're in your head you can have a discussion with a guy that says you have this lever this lever this lever and you go it's kind of like that but right yep. that's the goal the goal is to be able to speak both languages because because traditionally speaking that's that's where we have to come from right but it doesn't provide us the solution that we want that's the, mm -hmm. that's the, it's the limit of that, of that model. And then it becomes interference. Cause when we start talking about levers, then we start, start talking about the math that's associated with it. And we get these ridiculous force outputs that they go, well, uh, you have, uh, oh, here you go. I, I, I don't quote me on the math on this one, but, but it's <laughs> an example from uh, Graham Scar. Um, if you had like a, a, like a, a two kilogram fish on the end of a three meter fishing pole, I believe that there's like a 600 kilogram load on the lumbar spine, mm -hmm. but the, but the tissue tolerance is only 400 kilograms. It's like, so how is that even possible? Right. Mm -hmm. it's like, that's the kind of math that you get. It's like, well, the forces exceed the tissue tolerance and they, well, why doesn't your back explode? Mm -hmm. Well, because that's not how it works. Like, like, yeah. we've, like, th like the model is okay for us to kind of visualize and kind of guide us on, on certain things. But, but again, it, it, it doesn't, pardon the pun, it doesn't hold water. Yeah. Right. Okay. We got four minutes. You got something else? Yes, I do. Okay. okay away. So, go. so then how would this, how would this apply to, let's say the discussion around, like, if I flex, if I flex my biceps, to 90 degrees, right? Can I stop you? Let's yes. We can't flex a bicep. If I flex, if I flex my biceps and my elbow flexes, Thank if you. I can track my, my biceps, <laughs> my elbow flexes. <laughs> I got you, didn't I? I arrived. <laughs> yeah, you did. Okay, like 90 ahead. degrees. Yes. Um, if we use the lever pulley system, we say this is a 90 degree angle or what visually appears to be that. Sure. 
so the biceps has maximal leverage in that mid-length position. Yeah. Right. So, so how does this, how does this, um, sort of connect with using, let's say like, um, using the hypertrophy based intent of, of stopping, let's say like a curl here, right. Because that's the, the, the point of maximum peak output of that specific muscle. Okay. So does it just not apply? Well, once again, it's like, it's like we, we can use that perspective, but, but let's, let's also consider a couple of things. What would, what would need to happen? So if, if I'm trying to create a, a, a signal to create the adapt adaptation, which is the hypertrophy, right? So, yeah. so I have to produce enough trauma to that area, right? So how do I do that? How do I do that? Um, I have to create a lack of movement elsewhere, right? To allow that one movement to occur in such an isolated area, right? So the area of emphasis, right? Where the, the load has the impact to create that signal, right? So you say, oh, as so based on what you gave me as the representation, anytime that elbow is at 90 degrees under load, it's producing its maximum force, right? But sure. it's not, it's not. Put your elbow behind your body and put your elbow at 90 degrees. You ever do curls back there? Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, why? Um, because you distributed, because you distributed the relative motion, right? Which reduces force production. So now we're back to ERs and IRs stopping motion. So I have to stop. I have to slow everything down everywhere else and let this, let the velocity occur at the elbow to create an area of emphasis of load on tissue to get the tissue to respond in the appropriate manner. Okay. If you wanted to build the world's biggest chest. Okay. So we're talking like Schwarzenegger level. Pack, sure. Right? He still has the yeah. best chest. He still has the best chest that's ever been. I agree. Anyway, agree. so so how do you do that? Uh, do you put him on a on a, a a Swiss ball with with dumbbells and you say, Arnold, I'm going to put you in this unstable atmosphere where you have to try to manage yourself in space, or do you lay him down on a flat bench that's very very stable? stops motion from occurring so I can actually produce motion in another direction and then create an area of emphasis of, of the, of the movement. So that's where the stimulus occurs. Right. You, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Yeah. So all those people that, that like poo poo machine training really need to rethink their thought process in regards to if we're, if, if hypertrophy is the goal, right. Is mm -hmm. it like, again, if you don't really give the rats patootie about, about, movement capabilities, by all means, you better be doing some machine training. If, if hypertrophy is the goal, there's advantages there, right? right. Muscles don't care how you get the stuff in there. They just respond to a stimulus. So, uh, so a machine-based activity where I would have an artificial stability gives me an IR advantage because it stops motion from occurring. It helps me to stop movement. Right. Right. And so this, this is how this relates to the first discussion which was the max effort bench becomes more IR because there's there's less there's less overall movement occurring right. at the place that you're not necessarily so, so if I'm a power lifter, I want the least amount of, of ER necessary to create the the movement, right? Because the less ER I have, the more IR 
I can produce, the more force I can produce. Now, keep in mind, I need enough ER because if I don't have enough ER, I can't even finish the motion, right? And you've been pinned under a bench press once or twice in your lifetime, I'm sure, right? We all go mm -hmm. for it at some point in time. Yeah, sure. Right? So what is that? So that's a point where I can no longer produce enough ER field. So I've recruited all of the muscle that I can possibly recruit. I create a squeeze to such a degree that my ER field goes, it shrinks up and time stops. Mm -hmm. And all I have, there's no place to move anymore, right? No. So literally it's like, like think about like a bench press as an ER field and then as you fatigue and you recruit more and more muscle mass, you eventually lose enough, you, like you have no more eccentric orientation, everything is squeezing, everything is compressed, time stops, and so the bar stops moving. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, embarrassing. <laughs> no, it's just effort, right? It's just effort. Um, yeah. Do you have any other questions? Um, how much time do we have? Are we out of time? You're the last call of the day, dude. Oh, I was hoping. <laughs> I was hoping. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to take too much of your time. But, it's okay. Um, it's okay. We'll, we'll go. Was, we'll go. Yeah. So I get this still can relate to the, to the same discussion of like, and if you couldn't tell at this point, like I, I work with powerlifters and I, yeah, and I coach I powerlifters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I like to see how like your model fits into, um, to the people that I work with. And it's been really, really useful. Um, Good. Good, good, good. So there's this whole discussion around like um, scaps moving in a bench and or not moving at a bench, um, and especially when we're max effort. Um, I think I can kind of relate to this discussion because I'm always thinking about like where is the where is the ER occurring, right? Because it has to occur somewhere for the bar right. to move. Correct. Um, and when I'm thinking about like this really really arched position. Yep. I'm not getting expansion lower posterior. I'm not getting expansion upper posterior. I'm not getting expansion anterior when I unrack, right? So it's like, where's where visually can the expansion occur other than like the lowermost rib cage anterior because those are usually like flared up and out. So then yeah. I'm thinking like, well, how do we even how do we even move if that's really the case? If the if the expansion field seems like so far from where the movement is actually occurring, so 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 this is this is the value of orientation. Okay, mm -hmm. so so I can I can bend you, and I can create an orientation that provides me external rotation. Okay, so it's not external rotation by relative motions that we would want, right? So, so when we talk about comfortable movement and, and, and pain-free movement, that's typically associated with, with sufficient relative motion that we have a distribution of force, we have a distribution of tensions and things like that, that you don't feel it, okay? Mm -hmm. So when you're, when you're in that orientation of, of the bench press, so, so, okay. So let's talk about this for a second. Why do you arch in the bench press? Minimize range of motion. Okay. But finish, but, but you're, you're absolutely correct. So, so think about this. 
if I want to produce, produce maximum force, it behooves me to, to, to have a tremendous amount of internal rotation, okay? Mm -hmm. Traditional extension of the spine produces a downward force. If I was standing up, okay? If I was standing up, traditional extension of the spine produces a downward force. Internal rotation is a downward force, okay? It's a downward force that holds me up, right? If I don't push into the ground, I don't stay up, right? Right. Makes sense. Okay. All right. Right. So if I arch on the bench press, I am trying to maximize, I am trying to maximize the amount of internal rotation capabilities to maximize my force output into the bar. Okay. But if I arch myself and I, and I invert the upper part of the thorax. So you know what I'm talking about. It's like, you're on, you're sort yeah. of like you're, you're on the, the superior aspect of the scaps pressing into the bench. Okay. Yep. Into the bench. What does that orientation create for me? This will create. If I tip you backwards, if I tip you backwards, okay. Let's just, have you ever measured external rotation? Yes. Yes. So the orientation. Yeah. So I took an orientation that was, that was down right. into the ground and I took part of it. I took part of it and I tipped it backwards. Right. And that creates an ER space for me to move into. It's not a very big one, but I don't need a big one. I just need enough to move the bar this far to finish my lift. Mm -hmm. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. You see it? So, so my orientation. So, so basically, you take the pelvis, and you take the thorax and the abdomen, and I lock it into one big piece. And then I bend it, and I create internal rotation and external rotation by bending it. I create enough space for me to move into. Because again, I don't need, I don't, I don't want anything that approximates full range of motion because the more range of motion I have to control, the more energy I have to output to control the motion, the less energy I have to put into the bar to complete the lift. Mm -hmm. You see it? Yeah. So, so like literally you're taking your ER field and you go, I'm gonna smash it as much as I can, but I still need enough motion. So I'm gonna bend you just enough, right? And I created just enough motion they could probably take a breath. I could probably squeeze that, right? And then I got a socket that's oriented to such a degree that I capture just enough ER to, to finish the motion, okay? Right. You ever, you ever lift in a bench press shirt? Uh, no. Oh, okay. So, but you work with power lifters. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like a slingshot kind of idea. Kinda, kinda. Okay. So think about what a bench press shirt does. So, so you'll have guys that will add hundreds of pounds to their, their top end bench press, right? What does the bench press shirt do? Cause it can't lift weights. Mm -hmm. do, do. do you ever see somebody train a bench press shirt and they can't even get the bar to their chest? Right. There's they need, some people need, it kind of works the same way with squat suits where um, right. you need it's like a certain tight. amount of a way to create like a yield. It's, it's too tight, right? Like literally the shirt is too tight. This is why open back shirts work so well. <clears throat> the open back shirt gives you a little bit of ER, but it magnifies the compressor strategy on the front side, right? So I can magnify my output by squeeze, an artificial squeeze is just like my muscles squeezing me tighter, right? But, but now I can add a, a couple hundred pounds of squeeze I get just enough ER by keeping the back of the shirt open, 
right? So the guys with the, like, the first guy that tore the back of his shirt and goes, Hey, I can lift more weight even mm-hmm. better than when the shirt was one piece, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Kind of, like, like what a, what a great, what a great epiphany, right? But it's, mm-hmm. but, but what it does is it demonstrates the law, right? It's like, if the harder I squeeze, the more force I can produce, but I still need, I still need a space to move into. Otherwise the bar doesn't move. So, so when, when the guy puts on the bench pressure, he tries to lower the bar to his chest and he can't touch. There is so yep. much compression. ER is gone. Mm. You see it? Yeah. So just to make sure I have this correct. Yep. The, so just like we see the whole anterior orientation of a pelvis to produce force through the ground, we see a posterior orientation of the whole thorax. So the thorax is still anteriorly oriented, but because of the, of the position that they're in. So I took you from an upright position to, to laying down and there's enough motion for it to just fall like literally. So you're, you're resting on, on you're, you're resting on the shape of a thorax that is sort of like a V shape and you're balancing yeah. on that point and you got two choices. Either you tip this way or you tip this way. If I create an arch, if I create an arch, which is, which is the internal rotation, I magnify the internal rotation. But because of the constraint of the table, I can lay it back like that. You're still anteriorly oriented, okay, relative to the, to the shape of the axial skeleton. Relative to the, to the surface, you're tipped backwards. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the shape of the body is still anteriorly oriented. The, the shape relative to the, to the flat surface of the bench, you're tipped backwards. Okay. Is that? Yeah. Okay. I just want to be, make sure that, sir, that you're, you're understanding. Right. It's just if, if, my really, scaps, really if my scaps, if my scaps are, are, are shaking hands back there and becoming buddies. Yeah. Ain't no way you get a thorax that can move backwards. It's shoved forward by those two scapulae. Okay. I see what you're saying. So you're saying thorax is anteriorly oriented, but it's not, it's not tipped forwards. It is it pushed forward, but again, you have to compare what you're what you're measuring against. They say, what's our point of reference? Is our yeah. point of reference the 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 relative position to the bench tipped backwards, or is it is it the relative position of the thorax to the spine to the pelvis tipped forwards? Okay, okay. So I have a sh- I have a body shape, and then I have a position relative to the surface. Right. And you just have to describe your point of reference to make it clear. Okay. But either way, we're getting shoved forward all day there. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. You can't go backwards, dude. Oh, I know. Can't walk. I tried walking backwards. (laughs) You can't do it. It's not possible. You know, know, my dog had that moment. We only have mechanics in one direction. You can slow things down. You can slow things down, but you can't go there. My dog got stuck. Got stuck the other day. Did you you heard my dog story, too? Yeah. It's like I'm like five minutes. Yeah, it's like, what do I do now? What do I do now? Right? Yeah, they have to figure it out. All right, dude. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much for for, uh, letting me post this kind of stuff. And and I appreciate you. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. So when we're talking about the the backswing um, um, for a golfer, what that actually is, is a representation of early propulsion. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have Neural Coffee in hand and 
It is perfect. All right. Well, today is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday. So we have a coffee and coaches conference call at 6 a.m. Um, on Thursday morning. So please join us for that. The link will be on my professional Facebook page um, early tomorrow morning prior to the call. These calls have been getting really, really good. Big group of people, lots of great questions, and we've just gone long because I'm having such a good time with those. So uh, please join us for that. Um, digging into the Q&A for today. Um, today's Q&A is with Jason. Jason's a coach, um, had some questions in regard to the superimposition of ERs and, and IRs. And we used a golf swing as a representation for that. So if you work with golfers or rotational athletes, you're going to find this interesting because um, we also uh, had to discuss the influence of yielding overcoming actions and how that creates the, the important elements of the turn. We even got into some, some structural issues and in, in how we determine who's best for what type of activities. And if they choose to do certain activities, how are we going to best train them and select the appropriate interventions um, to do the best that we can under certain circumstances. So, so again, this is a really, really good call. So uh, Jason, thank you so much uh, for your participation. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, um, please email me at askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put the 15-minute consult in the subject line so I don't accidentally delete it. All right, got to run. It's Wednesday, always tight, always busy. I will see you guys tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. on the Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Have a great day. Camera is running. Clock has started. Jason, what is your question? My question is, is based off what I've learned from your model so far in my reading and just everything that I've gathered is when you talk about an ER hip shift or something that would be equivalent to loading into a cut or the examples that I used in the email question was a pitcher loading up on their trail leg before they're about to throw a baseball a golfer at the top of their backswing. Any of those examples, um, Based off what I've learned, you've considered that an ER hip shift and a certain musculature lengthening and other musculature shortening to load the movement per se. Yeah. I'm really having a hard time understanding <coughs> what muscles are doing what job. And it's kind of put me in a little bit of a confusing spot because based off previous information that I've learned, it's they don't mix. So I just want to learn. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, let's use the golf swing because I think it's a little bit easier to see. Sure. Okay. Right? So, so a couple of simple rules. We have to have an external rotation space to superimpose internal rotation on top of it because they happen at the same time. They are not separate entities. They are superimposed. Okay. okay? So external rotation creates somewhere to go. Internal rotation gets us there. Okay. So, yep. so that's how I want you to look at this. And again, that, because we got two ends of the golf swing that are somewhat similar, it's very, very, sure. very easy to see. Okay. Now, um, so, so we have a, a, an external rotation position it, it, that is represented in the pelvis that we want to talk about. And so, so what this is, is this would be the counter representation of, of the, the sacrum against the ilium. Okay. That would, that would be our representation of what the ER looks like. And so I actually have my pelvis handy, so I'm going to sure. show you. Okay. So it's going to be that relationship there. So I, I have, I have, the, the uh, counter-nutation of the sacrum. So it's moving back relative to the ilium or the ilium's okay. moving back, moving forward rather on, sure. on that. So I have two representations. I can use the ilium to push 
in that direction, counter-nutation, or I can move the sacrum back. So when we're talking about the, the backswing um, um, for a golfer, what that actually is, is a representation of early propulsion. So, so we're actually talking about, about how we take a step forward. Okay, so an mm -hmm. early propulsive representation is ER, it's counter-nutation, but it's the sacrum moving back relative to the, to the ilium. Okay. So, so what's creating this? So it's, a, it's actually a delay strategy. So what happens is if we talked about the left hip in, in, in the backswing, this side is actually going ahead of the right hip. So to create the delay on the, on the backside hip, if we're talking about a right-handed golfer, we're talking about the right hip, okay? So, so under this circumstance, to create the delay there, what I'm actually doing is creating a yielding action via the connective tissues. So I'm already in an ER representation, but to create the delay. So this side has to go slower than this side. Otherwise there would be no turn. So to create a turn, okay, both sides are in ER. Mm -hmm. One side is overcoming, which creates the turn away from this side. So on the left side, I have an overcoming action of those connective tissues, which moves that hip forward. This hip, creates a delay and it moves back. That's what creates a turn. Oh, so if I'm at the, oh yeah, the light bulb just went off, right? Okay. So so as I take the club back, and again, I'm, I'm talking about right-handed golfers. Right. As I take the club back, this side actually has to slow down relative to this right. side. That's what right. we use connect. So connective tissues behave based on rate of loading, okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, so the position is ER. Okay. And then I create the delay and that creates the space for which I can turn into. And then that's where we superimpose the IR on top of it. So if I don't have an ER space, if I don't create this delay strategy on this side, I can still orient the whole pelvis as a whole, but I'm using, I'm using a compensatory, uh, um, strategy to do so because I don't have the relative motions available. So what I have to do then, Jason, is I have to create relative motions somewhere else. Sometimes I can just create it right there at the hip joint, but this is where you're going to start to see the foot change in the ground because the foot has an early propulsive representation. The pelvis has an early propulsive representation that match. So if I don't have my, my true early representation where I have a yielding action here uh, on, the, on the backside of the pelvis, I don't have that representation in the foot anymore. So the foot's gonna move as a single unit. The pelvis is gonna move as a single unit. And so that's where you start to see people roll to the outside edge of their foot, right? Now I have to create internal rotation somewhere else. And I'm gonna usually do that by an orientation where I'm gonna tip the pelvis forward. Okay, mm -hmm. but again, this this just creates a cascade of compensations where instead of having relative motions to allow me to capture these positions, I'm using absolute orientations where I'm blocking multi-segmented areas into mm -hmm. a single segment of motion. And now I actually reduce my ability to create turn. It's like I can orient myself so I can make myself right facing. Yeah. 
but I'm not creating the, the segmental relative motions that I would use for a, for a, a controlled segmental movement, that, that, which is what is desired when we're talking about these activities so I can acquire effective positions that allow performance to, to be consistent. Because what happens is under the circumstances where, where I'm locking things into one piece, I get way too much signal, not enough noise. And so, so I can't make the small adjustments that I would normally make to smooth out move, movement. And so like when you get uh, like a golfer or a baseball pitcher that doesn't have these, these little segmental move, movements, what you see is inconsistency with ball contact if I'm a golfer or inconsistencies with the release point of the baseball if I'm a baseball player. Okay, because these little adjustments here, these little relative motions that I do have available to me is what makes sure that I am consistent because I can make these small adjustments and it doesn't, it doesn't require any thought. It's just the connective tissue behavior allowing me to capture these consistencies. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's, that breaks it down. That breaks it down. I'll definitely have to kind of swim in this train of thought for a while too to, to get it, but that does make sense. Yeah. So, so people think that muscles are doing everything when the reality is, is what it's like, we rely on connective tissues to do amazing things. When we're talking about force output, when we're talking about velocity and, and, and especially when there's a time constraint, connective tissues are, are, are the monster that, that has been ignored um, in, in how we actually produce forces. So, so it's a kind of a big deal. So, so, you know, the, the muscles are going to assure that we're in the right positions, but it, then it's the play of the connective tissues that are going to create the delays. And so when I talk about yielding actions, we're, we're in a, an energy storing um, mm -hmm. action of those connective tissues. And when we're in an overcoming situation, we're in an energy releasing situation. So, so yielding tissues are a little bit, little bit more expansive. They stretch. The overcoming tissues are a little bit, bit stiffer. But again, that's, that's where um, I'm, I'm really producing that, that high element of, of, of velocity. It's actually going faster um, in the overcoming situation and slower in the yielding. And that's, that's how you turn, right? Like you can use muscles to turn you, but it's going to be incredibly slow. Connective tissues can turn you very, very quickly. When you are referring to connective tissue, um, is fascia part of that? Everything that's not everything that's not an internal organ or a, or or the contractile muscle tissue, it, everything outside of that counts. Is in all, of that, all of that matters. All of that matters, right? That would change the way a lot of uh, coaches think about how they train for power, I think. So, well, it, yeah. so, so hang on. It changes how you think about it, but it doesn't change the activities, but it makes you better at selecting the appropriate activities for the athlete. Sure. Yeah. Right? Cause I'm already kind of going in my head, like thinking, you know, yeah, you bounce across, you bounce across the ground on connective tissues. You don't bounce across the ground on like the muscles capture the right. Position. So the muscles are what maintain the position, right? The connective mm -hmm. tissues is what's producing the action. Mm, yeah, that's good. Okay. That's good. Yeah. yeah well, it, good. It, it is. And, and, you know, when you, when, when uh, I, I did a little talk 
I think last week about stretch shortening cycle, um, because they've always looked at the tendon as doing all this work. It's like, um, let's not forget about all the other connective tissues here because they're all getting loaded at the same time. And especially the skeleton, the skeleton becomes very, very important um, when we're talking about really, really high force or high velocity activities um, mm. because it can store and release more energy than everything else because it's stiffer. Yeah. It takes a little bit more to deform it right? It takes a high force to deform a bone, but if you can deform it and, and, and it, one, it doesn't break, right? You got right. to yeah. those, yeah, that, like, well, that's a representation where the bone gets way too stiff too, too quickly and it snaps just like silly putty. Um, sure. But, but, but the reality is, is that we really have to start to appreciate how we're, we're, we're thinking about these things, because again, it helps us select better interventions because if, if I'm thinking that I'm changing muscle, when, it, when the muscle is, is literally there to create a position and then I'm not appreciating how the connective tissues behave, um, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, that changes. Yeah, kind of, it's got giving me, it gives me enough to think about for the next week. So, well, it, um, so, so here's, here's, here's what I would, here's what I would recommend that, that you start to think about is, is like you start to think about, okay, um, I'm using my muscles to capture a position, right? Yeah. And then the connective tissues, right? To, to identify what activities I'm going to use. The higher the force output that's required for that activity, the stiffer the connective tissue I'm going to be utilizing. Okay. So, so if it's, if it's, if it's, um, if my time constraint is brief, okay. Um, I'm going to use something that is easier to deform. Okay. Right. It's so, so it's, it's like a, like a, uh, like a shorter amount of time um, at high velocity. So it doesn't, it's not a, like a high force kind of thing, like sprinting is yeah. high force into the ground. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but throwing a five ounce baseball is a little different. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, and I so, guess I, I'm looking at the clock here as uh, two minutes, I guess I just want to add this in there. One more question. Like sure. so many different athletes are like what they call, you know, muscle driven athletes, very concentric, you know, driven, good accelerators, but not very good bouncers. How right. does how would that play into like training? Well, what's the goal? I guess if you were to look at a weak link for uh, a muscle driven, really good accelerator right out of the blocks or good team sport athlete, they're not very bouncy. So maybe you work more towards what you're saying, the connective end of this. You can, you can, but, but, but so, so let's keep in mind, there's, there's a reason that fullbacks are fullbacks in the NFL. Genetics. Well, yeah, it's like you're predisposed by structure to be, be better at something yeah. than you are at something else. So it would be very rare to have, so a fullback is a great accelerator, but lousy mm -hmm. top end speed, right? right? Because he's just not physically constructed for it, yeah. right? And then every once in a while, every once in a while, you get this one guy that can actually change his shape enough that he becomes the greatest of all time. So that's Barry Sanders. So Barry Sanders, great accelerator, great top end speed. But if you watch him on, if you watch him on video, Watch the shape change in his body. Like, look at how, how he behaves when he has to make um, short accelerations or changes of direction and then watch him at top end speed. It's like you will see a physical shape <clears throat> that takes place that allows him to do those things, right? That's why wide receivers are wide receivers, right? They're, yeah. they're not designed to be fullbacks. Yeah, they've yeah. been. Physical structure, physical structure points you in the right direction. If I'm talking about horses and I'm looking at a Clydesdale, or I'm looking at a thoroughbred. Who's faster? Thoroughbreds faster because they're just built for it, but they don't have the they don't have the force output that a Clydesdale does. So they don't they don't drag the wagons around. The Clydesdales do, right? So, yeah. so 
So whether you like it or not, there's certain things that you're going to be good at. And there's going to be yeah. certain things that you're not good at. Some people are great high jumpers and lousy shot putters. You could ruin athletes almost then if you, well, if you welcome, do the well, wrong thing. Welcome to the wrong thing. thing. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, there's many people that pursue things that they're not physically designed for. And then we end up seeing them, we end up seeing them in the purple room um, because they're doing stuff that, that, again, they just weren't meant to be, right? And, and they, they might pursue them or they want to pursue them or they enjoy certain activities. Yeah. Can't do things. It's just that you have to have to start to recognize it's like, you know what, maybe this isn't what I was cut out to be. Like, you know, some people should be marathon runners and not not offensive tackles. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. we could look at it that extreme, but but now let's look at the small gradients in between. It's like we have differences that we have to respect. Yeah. And That's so true. your job, your job is to figure out, okay, based on your physical structure, if you want to do this activity, what is going to be the, be the the best way for you to do it, the most effective way for you to do it, and the safest way for you to do it. And that's why this job is hard. Yeah, no kidding, because you're training high schoolers and you can't even get them to like pay attention half the time anyway. Well, that's so, that's just a dose of reality for sure, you. Absolutely. That's, that's, yeah. a, that's part of the job that, you know, sure. comes to the territory, right? Yeah. So, will this be recorded for me to rewatch? It is recorded. It will be posted and you will be famous. All right. Well, I appreciate right. it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. Great to Have talk to you. Sir. Have a great day. Happy Thursday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect as usual. Um, so my question is um, kind of on like assessment stuff. Um, so I've been working with more people online recently uh -huh. Uh -huh. and I try to do like, um, I try to do like table measures but like on the online platform um and i noticed that you know it could be very time consuming getting like multiple angles to make sure there's not a lot of compensations going on yeah um and then again walking people through these things and i've accepted that aspect of it but i'm getting more into the idea of like using you know um more just like movements like let's let's just see how you're walking or let's just see how you're squatting and yep. where you're crawling um but i'm not quite at the point where i'm really confident in like looking at someone like crawling and being like okay this is what you need yeah. um so i was just wondering like if you use any of these like movements to really like see like okay this is what's going on over like a table test and then if you do like what are you looking for and like what are these things telling you Okay. So kind of a broad question, but just your yeah, take. No, you're, you're okay. This is really common. Um, do you know what the table tests represent? So when you do a table test and you get a limitation in a table test, do you know what it, what, what it would represent as far as where the, the limitation is being produced? So from a, like we talk about superficial compression strategies and things like that, where you have concentric orientation of musculature and it creates a limitation. Do you know where those are? Yes. Okay. So then you're way ahead of the game. So if you know what the limitation is based on, on where, where somebody has concentric muscle activity, and then all you have to do is apply it to any dynamic movement and you, and you would expect it to either create the limitation or it would allow movement to occur, right? So if, if, um, if somebody is squatting 
and you see some deviation from what you have in your head as, as what would be a, a, a passable squat, then you can ask yourself, it's like, well, why would they do that? Right. And so if you get, if you have somebody that they, you, all you, all you say to, to them on this online assessment is say, I want to see you squat and see how deep you can go with your feet flat on the floor. And so here's what they do. They spread their feet apart really, really wide. They point their toes out and then they squat down and they get to about parallel. What's that representation mean to you? So they're, they're trying to create more external rotation to get that internal rotation. Okay. So, so do they have normal hip range of motion? No. So what would you do if, if you wanted them to squat? What would you do? Um, I would try to get them back more internal hip, internal rotation. How would you do that? So, I mean, it would depend on the, uh, the, infrasternal angle presentation, I would assume. Okay, they, they got a big sweatshirt on, they can't see it. What would you do? I would try to, you know what, to be honest, I'm not sure off the top of my head. Okay, so, so where, so give me an exercise where you know that you would have to capture internal rotation in the hip to execute it correctly. Well, I mean, a squat. But. Okay, but, but I'm taking that one off the table because we, I, and you can actually do this. You can actually use the squat to help her, help her with her squat, but I want you to kind of think just a little bit more broad scope so we have another option on the table here. <clears throat> so I think I'm losing you for a second. Um, so you want an exercise yeah. that they're going to require internal rotation to go through? Yes, sir. Of the hip? Yes, sir. Um, I would say uh, like a cross connect. Okay. Um, at what point do I need internal rotation and a cross connect? Um, as you're coming through 90 degrees and you're bringing that elbow across. Awesome. Is there, what about the extended, the extended foot that's on the wall? Is there an element of internal rotation there? Yes. Okay. Um, where do I capture that? Um, how do how do I know that I'm going to maintain that internal rotation um, with that activity with the extended leg? What are, what are the, the what cues do I need to make sure that I'm I'm capturing the the internal rotation element? Um, cueing through the foot, making sure the inside edge of the foot is still maintaining contact with the wall or the box or whatever. Awesome. What do you need table test for? Oh, okay. <laughs> so so here's what you just did kyle is you you took her through a, a squat and you went oh she doesn't have normal hip range of motion here's what i'm going to do i'm going to put her in a position where i know she's going to have to capture guess what er field with a superimposed ir on top of it you just did a cross connect right so you just mm -hmm. did an activity that requires what what to, to execute the activity it requires what she doesn't have and so you may have just given it to her right Yes. You see it? It's like, that's why the table tests are important to understand because they tell you where the, the limitations might be being produced. If I know where they're produced and I know where that influences it, exists in other activities, now I can start to use other activities to address it. I don't need to put people on the table. Mm -hmm. You see it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so you I could have said, you could have said to me, hang on, sorry. You could have said to me, 
um, I'm going to put her in a split squat because where in the split squat do I need to capture internal rotation? At 90 degrees. Hey, how about that? Okay, but where do I need to start the split squat to make sure that I can get to that 90 degree without a compensatory strategy? From the bottom? Um, eh, you're probably going to be a little too close to that 90. What if I put her at the top? Okay, mm -hmm. I put her at the top of the split squat. Um, what would I need to make sure that, that she has to do with that foot thing again to make sure that she starts from a good position of, of ER and we can superimpose the IR? Inside edge of the foot. There you go. So now I got a split squat. I use the same foot contacts as, as, as the cue. And then I just watch her do the split squat. And I say, oh, she can or she can't. And then that allows me to, to select, do I need to do something else that might be um, less um, gravitational demand? Or is there something else that I, that I can do that's a little bit more complex like a split squat? Yeah, yeah that's super And then you, you do what's meaningful to you. It's like, it's like what... And you can create anything that you want. Like people say, well, Bill, what tests do you do on, on, when you do an online assessment? I go, ah, you know, I just do what I need to do, right? Because whatever I need at the time. Mm -hmm. If you want to standardize something, you can do that too. Okay. But, but I think you already understand. What should I look for when I'm when pressing overhead? Um, when I'm looking... Um, what should I look for when, or what does it look like when you have compression in in the upper back? Because I've seen more commonly, I see compression in the lower ribs, um, and so basically, in that case, the back looks kind of like there's like a little bit of a kink, and they're anteriorly oriented at the pelvis, and they right. can't get the bar behind. Yeah. They have to lean backwards. They're leaning backwards to get the bar up into the position, right? Right. And then I've seen uh, compression in the mid back. And then those athletes state their entire thorax kind of looks like a, like the letter C, like they're like super arched through. Um, they, they might be able to get the bar behind, but usually it's, it's in line with their head. Yeah. And then I'm wondering what does compression higher up on the thorax look like in terms of an overhead press? Okay. So, um, You'll, you'll usually see this in a, in a jerk anyway, just because of the, the dynamic nature of it. So if you think about pushing the, the, the upper dorsal rostral spine mm. forward, it's gonna take the lower cervical spine with it. Mm. Like once it hits the constraint, so everything's gonna start to go forward. Like when you, teach a, when you teach a press or you teach a jerk, do you teach people to stick their head through the window concept? Yeah, uh, yeah, I teach them to to look down a little bit at forty five and to get the head through. Right. So, so the head going forward is that compression, and mm -hmm. so then the degree of the compression would be relative to the the degree of how far forward they have to push their head to finish. Okay. So, yeah, so I've, I've seen that in some beginners work. Yeah, yeah. Their head is like they look like a like a, a chicken or something. I mean, they're right. really through. So so now let's go back to Kyle's question. Yay, Kyle. Um, we can actually use the press as a diagnostic, right? So we have a comparator now. And so let's say that Manuel's working with somebody on their overhead press, and he sees this gigantic anterior translation of the, of the cervical spine and the head as this person is trying to finish the press. So that's going to be a, a rather aggressive position of internal rotation right, to finish the, the, the press. But it might be indicative of the fact that they started from a deficit 
of, of dorsal rostral expansion. They don't have full dorsal rostral expansion. Therefore, the IR element would get further exaggerated, right? So now you have a comparator. So if I want to reduce that Manuel, then you say, okay, do your overhead press. And then you do something that you say, well, this activity is going to improve dorsal rostral expansion. Um, and then you have them overhead press again. Right. And then, then you have, now you have a comparator. So now Kyle has another test for shoulder mobility or neck, right? Because they work together. And so again, that's just knowing what your table tests are going to show you. Right? What position of the scapula are you going to be in? How is that going to put pressure against the dorsal rostral thorax? What is the end result of that motion in regards to its bias towards ER and IR? Right? Hmm. So eventually, we should just be training people, right? Because that's where they're going to be demonstrating these things anyway. Got it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Top fuel dragsters reach like over 300 miles an hour in, in a quarter mile, right? Yep. Do you know how they slow down? Is that with the parachutes? Yeah. There you go. Cool. So, so what I need is something that will, will, will catch the air. It expands backwards and it slows the car down, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So wouldn't it be really cool if I had that mechanism built into the to the back side of my body that I could slow down one side of my body so the other side could step forward a little bit faster. Yes. That's the yielding action. So the parachute is, is the yield on one side. So it has to expand on, on one side so the other side can compress and go faster. Okay. So that's how go. it gets ahead. And that's connective tissues that are creating that, that behavior. Because both sides are still going forward. It's just that one side's going forward faster so if both sides are going forward, I have to have concentric activity on both sides, but I have concentric yielding on one side and that allows the other side to get ahead. You see it? Yes, I'm seeing it more. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. If, if we have somebody who's stuck in, in that, le in that uh, left hip forward position, which do we try to acquire the late propulsion on the right first or the early propulsion on the left first and, and then why I, okay. I like, I, I, I want to understand how you would think about that. Okay. So if, if you have a late propulsive strategy on the left side and, and an early propulsive strategy on the right. Okay. That's what you're describing. So you have late yes. on the left, early on the right. All right. So far so good. Yep. Okay. Which hip is going faster forward? the which hip is what in what context in the velocity in the world uh, <laughs> which one's going for faster forward for uh, the left hip okay that was a good guess because I, I could hear the question mark at the end um okay so so i need to flip-flop this right if if i try to push the right hip forward faster and the left hip is already going forward faster. What's going to happen? If I need to push the right hip forward faster and the left hip is, uh, then you're just going to go, you're just going to fall forward. Well, both hips go, fo go forward faster. Right, right. Did I, change, did I change the relative positions? 
Uh, probably not. So I should probably slow the left side down first. Okay. Okay. Got it. So, so, so hang on. So your client's running away from you. Okay. They're running away from you. They're, always. and they're wearing, they're wearing their favorite pair of blue jeans. Okay. <laughs> they got two back pockets. Okay. All they right. got two back pockets. All right. You grab the right one. Okay. You grab the right one and, and it slows them down on that side, but the left side. So they're just dragging you across the gym now with that left leg forward. Okay. So they're pulling you and you want to slow them down. Would it make more sense for you to push the right side pocket forward or grab the left side pocket and pull that one back? It's a good way to think about it. Left, obviously grab the left yeah. pocket. Right. And then all, then you fixed it because you slowed the left side down and the right side is going to be able to go ahead. So now I can flip flop it. Got it. Got okay. it. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's very, that's very helpful. Um, and so now we're back to Kyle's question about the delay strategy. So, so now Kyle goes, Oh, wait a minute. That's like the parachute on the dragster that I've never seen because I'm an American, but I don't know what drag racing is. <laughs> Right. Sorry, Kyle. I'm just picking on you, man. Now, now, if if and you can move on to the next person if you want. Oh, but, thank you. Um, I appreciate you giving me permission to run my own show. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I, I... Your responsibility is not to fix anybody. You can't okay. do it. That's not your responsibility. You can't fix anybody. Could you elaborate on that? <laughs> Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man. What a great week. A um, couple things. If you look down in the right hand corner, I've had a couple questions about the change in the logo where it says the intensive returns. Yes, the intensive is coming back. Um, we'll probably be doing something in, in early summer. So be on the lookout for that. Um, I don't have any details posted, so again, just please wait patiently. Um, if you're interested in participating in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillharmon.gmail.com. And speaking of which, we're going to talk about the Q&A for today, which is with Johnny. So we've talked to Johnny before. Johnny's a really, really smart guy. Um, he's a chiropractic student, but asks really, really good questions. And so uh, Johnny was watching the video that we did with Paul recently in regards to the origins of my model. And so Johnny wanted some clarification in regards to the, how the ER and the IR concepts evolved. And we got deeper and deeper into some of the treatment process too. So I think that, that anybody that works with complex humans is gonna find, find this one interesting. So um, I appreciate you all for being here. Um, don't forget to go to YouTube and subscribe to the YouTube channel so you can get first dibs on the videos as they are posted up there as well. Um, have a great weekend and I will see you next week. All right, camera is rolling. Clock has started. Johnny, go ahead. All right. So I listened to the full conversation you had with Mr. Paul Corona. Ah, yes. And so yes. fascinating. I loved it. Um, but I wanted to, unintended, expand on the idea of external rotation being represented by expansion and compression being represented by internal rotation. Yep. Um, so I guess when you were coming up with your model, how did you 
bridge that gap because to me, expansion and ER would make sense, the most sense to start with respiration and looking at the mechanics of the rib cage. And then from there, obviously you see that the whole body ERs expands and IRs and compresses after that. Um, yep. But I guess like, what was your first step in like bridging that gap of expansion equaling ER, compression equaling IR? And just kind of want to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, so, so when you look at, when you look at the, the helical orientation of anything, so if you look at a tube, right, um, you, ever, you ever see the Chinese finger trap or whatever? Yeah. Called? Okay. Yeah. So, so that's how that works. It works based on, on compression and expansion. So that's, that's how you create the shape change, right? And, and so that's a great representation of, of, of just simply how a helically oriented tube behaves. And so you got to go backwards in time from an evolutionary standpoint, right? And we start talking about worms and we say, well, wait a minute, that's a perfect representation of compression expansion of how you create movement. It's like, do we have anything that would be representative of that? And you kind of do, right? You have a, you have a, you have a closed cylinder of, of fluid volume, don't you? And, and yeah. so it's like, Hey, how would that behave? Well, it happens to do exactly the same thing. And so how would I do that? Well, if only we had like a helical orientation and you start looking at, you go, Oh, wait a minute. I have these, these things on the outside that, that man called muscles. Right. And, and, and so, so they're oriented in very specific directions and they're in opposing helices. Right. And so if I squeeze it down, it gets, it compresses everything and it creates a downward force. Awesome. Okay. That's internal rotation. That's what we call internal rotation. So if both sides are turning inward towards each other, it gets compressed it gets smaller and more dense and it moves downward and then if i if i uh move them in opposing directions the opposite direction everything expands and it goes upward um there's a great way to there's a great way to feel this um if you've have you ever been scuba diving no i haven't okay so let me talk about what scuba diving is for a second and 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 it, it, but again you'll be able to picture this Okay, at least. So when you go scuba diving, you 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 have to put weight on you to push you down underwater, right? But once you get underwater a certain depth, there's enough force above you that will push you down. Okay, like you will accelerate into the the ocean floor if you if you allow it to happen. So you have to wear what's called a buoyancy compensator. So it's actually a like it's like a life vest that you fill up with air to create a balance between the forces that are pushing you down, and then you get enough expansion to hold you up. And so what you want to try to, to get is what's called neutrally buoyant. Okay, so literally you put enough air in, in the buoyancy compensator to 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 balance the force, and you literally sit at the same same place in the water. Okay, so you don't sink and you don't go up. Okay, but but if you sit still and you take a breath in, you go up, and then when you exhale, <laughs> you go down, and so you have this little excursion as you breathe in and out that you can one you if you have some some frame of reference you can actually see yourself going up and down and you can feel yourself going up and down so it's a great little representation of this concept so you take the same thing it's like okay this is a fluid based kind of a representation but guess what on earth this exact same thing is happening to you as you breathe we don't feel it as much because we're so grounded um by by this perception of gravity right so the ground yeah. Ground's pushing up against you constantly. And so you feel this sense of, of, of acceleration uh, of perceived gravity, right? So you don't feel the up and down, but the reality is, is that as you breathe in, okay, your density is reduced, you go up. And as you breathe out, your density increases and you go down, 
right? That's why I always describe ER as up and IR as down is because that's what's happening. But it's based on, it's based on the behavior of how these helices change the physical shape of the cylinder and you, sir, are the cylinder. Gotcha. So is the uh, resultant force of going up with external rotation, is that more based on just fluid dynamics or is that some other physical property that I'm not appreciating? Well, you have mass per unit area, you have, you have, because of the expansion, your mass per unit area changes, right? So that's mm -hmm. going to alter, alter some, some influences, the physical shape change, right? So you get a little bit bigger. So you're going to go up, right? Right. So it's the wacky wavy tube guy, right? So the wacky wavy yeah. tube guy stands up when you fill him up with air, right? That's you. I mean, you have to follow the same principles. So, so it's really no different. You take the air out of the wacky wavy tube guy, he goes down. You see it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Okay. It's like, cool. it's like you, we can't ignore the rules, right? The rules exist. We just have to recognize like as, as a human being based on, on what structural elements that I bring to the table, it's like, how do I behave within the rules? That's, yeah. that's, that's all I'm trying to do is create a coherent representation of what's actually happening as we move through space. Because again, it's like, I can't change the rules. And, and there's, thankfully, there's very few rules, right? Yeah. No, actually, I love that point. I love when you said with talking to Paul, looking at all systems, like, because they all work to an extent, but they have a limit. And then you look at... We're all looking at the same thing. We're all right. looking at the same thing, right? It's like, right. we have to we have to see... and, and but, but it's like, if you get 17 people looking at the same thing, we're all looking at it from a different direction. Right. But the problem is, is that I have one guy that's looking at it from this side, one guy that's looking at it from this side, and they're not switching sides. Yeah. Right. And then seeing what's common between all of these perspectives. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we just need a, a more representative, coherent model. And like I said, that's, that's all I'm trying to do. Because I don't care. I don't care what tactics you use. That's what pe people are trying to sell you tactics. Right, uh -huh. you, you, go, you go to a course and they say, uh, "Well, you're you're a you're a, a Cairo uh, practic student, right?" So, so yeah. again, it's like, so um, have they taught you any manipulation yet? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's like, well, so, but there, that that's one of those foundations that that is just prolific within your profession, right? It's like it's it, that's going to be one of the tools that you will use, right? And again, so that's just a tactic to get to the to the end result to buy you a window of opportunity to do something else, to teach that system to, to, to behave in a certain way based on principles, right? Yeah. And so there's gonna be a point in time where that's gonna work really, really well. And then there's gonna point in time where it probably won't, right? Because again, then now we're back to that, the old classic conversation. It's like when, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, mm -hmm. right? Well, what you wanna have is a few more tools in the toolbox because I might need something else under a certain cir circumstance that would work better. And the only way you find that out is like you test the waters and you say, okay, under these circumstances, this works really, really well. And then you and I will have a conversation 10 years from now and you're going to go, oh man, I was an idiot that first year because all I had was a hammer. Right. And then, yeah. you and then, and then you, you, you work with enough people and then you develop this sense, this sense and awareness of what the probabilities are under what circumstances based on what you've done in the past. You say, every time I do this, people react a certain way, 
right? Most of the time. So that's going to be the tool that I would use in that situation. Every time I do this, people react a certain way. So I'm going to use this tool under this circumstance. And then that's how you refine your skills over time. And then when you get to be an old man, you, you're, and again, you're, you're, you're never going to be perfect, right? You're still going to be wrong. You're still going to make mistakes. You just make fewer of them over time. If you pay attention. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And I think having like something like your model with foundational principles that are coherent within a bunch of systems at such a young age for me and so the young starting point in my career will be super helpful to kind of guide. Right. You, a lot of you, still, you still, you still have to, you still have to experience the failures. So you learn something though, right? It's oh, like, absolutely. Like you start with a better model. You got a much better shot at narrowing the probabilities quicker. Okay. But you still got to go through the process. See, that's, this is the mistake that a lot of people are making is that they're relying on information to guide their process. It's like information informs, right? It doesn't represent the process. There is no cookbook, especially when you're dealing with complex human beings. You still have to do stuff. You still have to pay attention. You still have to identify. It's like, okay, what was this outcome? What are the possible influences that I have any measure of control over, right? So you stay, you remain process oriented, whether you're successful or whether, whether you consider it a failure, you still got to go through the same process and ask the same questions. It's like, okay, what did we do? What was the result? What could I have done better? Um, where did I make a mistake? Is there any influences that, that the, the client brings to the table that I'm not addressing? Like, so again, so the stuff that you have control over, you try, you try to influence the stuff you don't have control over. We call that luck, right? Yeah. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot of luck in this. When, yeah. Nobody, nobody likes to admit that because they want to think they have control over things. <laughs> we, we I, don't uh, have control, man. That's so funny you say that I caught my, my brain. Uh, I had a patient come back in after like a week I worked with her. It's like, Oh yeah, my elbow's feeling better. And then like my initial instinct was like, Oh yeah, it must've like really worked. Whatever actually I gave her. And then I was like, well, I have no clue. There was a week of events that like maybe she got better sleep, like all these things. And I, that one experience was pretty uh, pivotal okay. for me. That's humbling, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Because like yeah. you said, you only have so much influence over one person's. Yeah. I'm not even seeing you for, well, maybe for you an hour or so, but in a chiropractic office, it's 30, yeah. 15 minutes, somewhere around there. They have 23 other hours of that day. And then a couple other days, so they see you again. Yep. What's the limiting system when somebody comes to see you for for any complaint? Any complaint? What's the limiting system? Like, if if we consider subsystems within the human body, right? What's the limiting system? You don't know. Yeah. So you don't know which one you're affecting. So your treatment might be the the best treatment under the circumstance, but it doesn't address the limitation, and so it doesn't. So they don't get better. And then they go off and they go do something, right? That has nothing to do with you, <laughs> right? You give them homework to do. They're doing their homework has, and it doesn't help. They don't know it, but they accidentally do something that does help. And then they make the association. What They go, Johnny's brilliant. Johnny's brilliant. He gave me this exercise and it took it like five or six days, but, but now I'm good. It's like, we, just respect that. Just respect the process. Like, it's like sometimes we have nothing to do with the outcome. We oh, just have man. to be there, right? Yeah. That just makes it so messy. <laughs> it's, oh, dude, you want messy? Come on, you're dealing with human beings here in a, in a, in a world that we don't understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you really think you have that kind of control? <laughs> <laughs> it's easier to believe that, at least. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's very ego satisfying, right? Yeah. 
you know, <laughs> but, but again, it's like that, that if you get, if you can, if you can grasp that concept now, it takes a lot of the emotion away from it. It's like, you're still going to have those days where you're like incredibly frustrated. It's like, like you're going to take responsibility for, for the outcome when it, it, whether it is or whether it isn't, it might be your fault. It might not be your fault, but a lot of times you just don't know. And, and again, so if, if you can look at it from a process standpoint, <clears throat> it takes the emotions out of it. And, and believe me, it's less wear and tear on you. It's like early in my career, it's like, you know, I was, I make the joke about the scar that I have on my forehead from banging my head on my steering wheel. Every night I used to drive home after work and going, man, I'm an idiot. I just don't know what I'm doing. It's like, why, why can't I help these people? Why isn't everybody getting better? Right. And, and it's just the reality. It's like, okay, from the, where I was in that process of, of my professional evolution, it's like, I did the best that I could under the circumstances. I wasn't, I wasn't intentionally letting people down. I just didn't know enough. I didn't know how to manage the probabilities. I didn't have enough tools in my toolbox. It's like, so, so you, you got to think of this as a, as just a, a total evolution, you know, from, from the perspective of your own development, from your ability to apply, from your ability to make decisions, right? It, it, it's like, they can hand you the cookbook, but it doesn't mean that it's going to, you know, matter at all under many circumstances. There's people that you're not going to be able to help. And there's a lot of people that you will. Yeah. I've actually I've Except, thought about that. What's that? Accept it now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've thought about that too. Like the discomfort, like as a student, you're trying to learn like, okay, I'm going to get everybody better. Like, how am I going to do that? And then not like you're saying, just not accepting the fact that that's just not going to happen. All like literally hinders the learning process in my opinion because then you don't branch out and all these other things. And I don't know, accepting that has just made it a lot easier for me. It, it, you know, the, 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 the frustration is good. Frustration is, is, is going to drive your progress, right? I need to know more. I need to understand better. I need to get, I need to refine, like all, all of that is important, right? But at the end of the day, you have to say there's a limit. Yeah. And then if, I mean, cause if you do think that you're, helping everybody, then you don't think that you need to improve. So you don't refine or do anything. That's why, again, it goes back to process. It's, it's like, that's why you have a process, right? If you look at, you know, go, go, you ever read uh, um, uh, Jocko uh, Willink's books? You ever read mm -hmm. them? Okay. You know who Jocko is? I do not. Oh my gosh. You need to get out more. You already in school or something? Um, <laughs> no. So, so, um, yeah, uh, he's got a whole series of books on on leadership, but but they they talk about how the military um, goes through a process of debriefing after every mission, where they ask the same questions. It's like, okay, what happened? What was the result? Was this the desired result? If it wasn't, you know, where could we have have improved? What could we have done better? What and, and like even when they're successful, they're asking these say they say, what could we have done better? What what decisions did we make? And how did those influence that? It's like you have to go through the same process. You have to go through a debrief. Every time you work with somebody, you go through, a, whether you do it formally or, or, or subconsciously, you have to go through this process. Otherwise you're not going to change. And if you don't change, then you're going to be that guy that has 30 years in, but not 30 years of experience. Yeah. You, see, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that guy. You do not want to be that guy. Right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess on that same note, like how do you balance, because we were just talking about not taking, not necessarily not taking responsibility, but um, like a patient does get better than not saying like, oh, it must have been us. But then also on the same token, if they're not getting better, then we think that we need to refine our abilities. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you balance like 
accepting responsibility, but also realizing it's a complex system. So your, responsibility, do- your, your responsibility is not to fix anybody. You can't okay. do it. That's not your responsibility. You can't fix anybody. Could you elaborate on that? <laughs> they, they, they fix themselves. You're, you're there to, to, to guide and create an environment that allows their system to behave a certain way that it didn't behave before. It is the behavior of their system that is the solution. Our job is to try to figure out the best way for them to be able to access their abilities to do that. We don't fix anything. Okay. You are, you are interacting with a system and, you're, and you poke them and you go, what happened? And you go, <laughs> I like that. That was a good thing. I'm going to poke you right there again. And we're going to keep poking that until it's no longer useful. And then we're going to poke something else and we're going to poke that spot. And then we'll see what happens there. Ooh, I don't like that. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to come back over here and I'm going to try to find something to poke over this away. And, and that's the, pro- it, it is a process. It is a process right? Because you have no idea what you're influencing. No, all due respect to all the science that we think that we, that we understand. And we, and we, there are some things that we, you know, that are useful for understanding, you know, as far as how we influence things, but ultimately we don't know and be comfortable with that. That's the hard thing. It's like, like everybody wants to be the fixer. It's like, what, what, nothing could be more ego satisfying than to do something with someone and they get, they go, wow, I feel so much better. And you go, way to go me. Right? <laughs> But that's not the reality. The reality is, is that you help them, you help them create an environment that allowed them to be successful. You're not successful. They are. Okay. Hey, I I don't want to cut you off, brother, but I got to go. I got to grab another call. Okay. Yeah. No worries. I appreciate you squeezing me in. No worries. Have a great day. I'll see you You later. Take care.